I think that the real story here is uh, one of technological disruption and, and really basic business strategy where you have the, the tribe of the, the union, they're there to protect themselves. They're there to gather as many resources as they can for themselves, uh, which is completely reasonable and a fair thing to do and totally support that behavior. And you have to be able to produce something of value at a price that can, can produce actual resources. And I think what they are just generally missing is that they're missing the basic business strategy uh, of the auto industry or of any industry. This week, the hosts of What I See, Mark O'Donnell and Lewis Schiff, went mano a mano in discussing the twin strikes looming over American society, the auto strike and the Hollywood writer strike. Both are pitched battles over two beloved aspects of American life, the cars we drive and the TV and movies we watch. Mark and I want to discuss which matters most, the humanity and dignity of work and workers, or the relentless drive to innovate, to make the things we consume even better. Find out on What I See, conversations with innovators, visionaries, and entrepreneurs. Welcome to What I See, the podcast where we uncover the stories of visionaries, innovators, and entrepreneurs. Join us as we explore the big ideas and challenges shaping our future. And now our hosts, Mark O'Donnell and Lewis Schiff. Hey, Mark. Hey, Lewis. How are you? Good. This is the second time I get to hang out with you this week. That is true. Yeah. The first time at, at Ryder <laughs> University, hanging out with where you, you were, and Norm and a bunch well, of Well, you were shaping young minds. You were, That's you right. were setting, setting our young people on a course for their future with your wisdom. Or future destruction, whichever, you know. <laughs> I mean, two of them have been, in, have been arrested since your presentation, but whatever. <laughs> well, you know, that would not be uh, – if that actually happened, I would believe it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I will pay their legal bills, but that's not what you – No, no. They, can, they, they made their own decision. It's <clears throat> their fault for listening to me and, you know. I, I take no. no. Uh, actually, I'm going to say a compliment to you and to Norm Brodsky, my business partner and my mentor. So Norm's been a you know kind of a, a eminence grease of entrepreneurship for for decades, and but one of his great qualities is that he always always shows up to things as a student. He always brings some paper and pencil. He takes notes. Doesn't matter what the situation. And you will be happy to hear that <clears throat> after that event i saw him the next day as we as you know that was tuesday mm -hmm. wednesday we have whiskey wednesday in brooklyn so we were gathered and he said he could not stop thinking about some of the things you said including the six qualities of an entrepreneur that you were talking about um, yeah. and he said he really thought about them he learned things he it, it, awo it awo like awoken what's the word it awoke what woken it woken awakened aware awakened it awakened some uh, things he's never thought about in terms of his own way that he shows up as an entrepreneur. Yeah. And, and we should have Norm on the podcast. Maybe he should yeah. join us on a regular basis. I think that would be fun if he's up for it. Oh, yeah. He's definitely up for it. Yeah. Um, so with that, um, you and I were talking about things that are on our minds as uh, the 
the captain, the co-captains of what I see conversations yeah. with innovators, visionaries, and entrepreneurs. And um, we got to talking about this uh, highly disruptive moment in time, uh, the, the twin strikes taking place in America on two huge parts of the way we live our lives, cultural with the uh, writers, actors strike in Hollywood, mm -hmm. and uh, the way we get around, and of course, our love of cars with the auto strike. Um, and as we just began to talk about it. You said, this is good fodder for our podcast. Let's talk about that. Yeah, and I think it is. So today, Friday, September 22nd uh, at noon, we'll find out what happens with the UAW, if they're going to increase the strike. I think they've got about 10% of the 150,000 uh, people who work inside of the auto industry and they're a member of a union. So they, about 10% uh, are on strike now, uh, have left work, uh, and they're going to increase that um, on, a, on a periodic basis as they're not making progress with their, um, their negotiations. But I think, you know, union, non-union, doesn't none of that really matters from my perspective. And as you mentioned, the, the writer's strike, you see people like Bill Maher saying he's going to come back and they got back at the negotiating table. So he uh, stopped that and Drew Barrymore doing the same thing with her talk show. Um, so people are sort of starting to uh, want to come back to work. But I think the reality is it's being disrupted by uh, technology. And... This has happened over and over again all throughout history. These disruptive technologies come in. It disrupts the underpinning of whatever society is at that particular time. And I think it's inevitable. We just happen to be in that, that spot. Um, and I think it's interesting because when you think about from an entrepreneurial perspective and you think about you're an entrepreneur you have a product or service that you are selling in the marketplace. It has to provide value at a fair price uh, that people, their willingness to pay is uh, at a certain level that is below your cost of production, right? And, and that margin allows you to invest and, and produce something of even more value to increase their willingness to pay even more. So what I think is that that is interesting for entrepreneurs with the strike is that that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about basic business strategy and in a competitive environment and in, in a competitive economy where monopolies are, are generally frowned upon, you must reduce costs in order to be competitive. And you have to provide value over and above that cost. And, and that's just the way of it. <laughs> and so what you're seeing to me is a conflict between value creation and cost. Well, well let me take it from a totally different side and then we'll come yeah. back to that general thing. Yes to everything you said. And yes, that is the job of the entrepreneur, of the creator of a company, the person who marshals capital to build things. The other thing that capitalism does is it asks tens or, or hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of people to show up at work every day, do their part, 
and then leave at the end of the day, and then they're paid for their time. And then they use that money to pay their rent and their grocery, et cetera. Yeah. And so when we think of unions and I think of that, those hundreds of thousands of workers, I think, you know, everything you said about uh, how things change and how companies reinvest in the future is true. And those 150,000 people are not really a, a significant part of that conversation. They more or less enjoy the relationship where as long as they like to do it, they'll do what they're told. They add their value and then leave at the end of the day and they can pay their rent bill. And so when these disruptions happen, those people are disrupted. They are. And yeah. that's where this pain comes from, writer strike, auto strike, where the ways that customers say, I want to pay for things, the ways that entrepreneurs or, you know, the owners of capital say they want to charge for things. And then there's this last group called the workers. Mm-hmm. And they're like, they are last in line because obviously we don't know what to tell them what to do until we know what they should do. But in the meantime, there's a kind of general um, bargain between worker and, and employer is, hey, I'll show up and do what you tell me to do. And then you'll give me my pay at the end of the week. And then it's all getting challenged in real time by innovation. And these guys are, these workers, men and women, are at, the, are at the whip tail of this whole thing. And it's just tough. And, and I would say by by choice, right, they, they're free to opt in or opt out of uh, of that environment, you can go back to the you know since it's auto, go back to the the days of you know turn of the the century, uh, the last one, uh, right. and there's livery stable workers. There's an entire system that is set up to take care of horses and remove uh, remove manure and um, all those those individuals who were working in that area had to completely uh, change and create new capabilities, learn new things and adapt to their environment. And this is no, no different. And if you look at the United States in general, you have uh, the Southern states um, where there are non-union auto workers. You have, like you look at the top 10 vehicles that are produced uh, today that are for sale in the United States. The top 10 most American-made cars are not any of the three uh, big automakers that the UAW is striking against. Tesla is the highest-selling, most American-made vehicle. They have the highest percentage of American-made parts uh, and assembly and everything else. And they have five times profit per car than any of the big three. Because they've, and those, there's obviously employees there. They're adapting to reducing costs, selling a product people love um, without artificially trying to set a a price floor, Um, which makes Tesla, and their plan is to cut the cost of production by 50% over the next few years. So, you're going to be able to buy a car for way cheaper that is better. Um, and those, those, the people working in those facilities, they've just adapted. And again, Southern states, non-union, they get paid about the same. So the 150,000 UAW workers and, and the, the general uh, environment there in, in the Northern states, they're just setting themselves up for a non-competitive situation. 
And if people start to think about the, themselves as the business of one and take responsibility for their own outcomes, um, that opportunity is exciting. Right. And I, I, I hear you and I'm, I'm kind of partly playing devil's advocate here because yeah, I've often sure. wondered why people, you know, people can move to anywhere. Not only can they move to a different state, right? If you, this is getting even bigger than the original topic, but there's 50 yeah. states, which means there's 50 experiments, right? Uh, Alabama's allowed to have its laws and New York's allowed to have its laws. Yeah. And lo those laws spring from cultural beliefs in some instances. Yeah. And so you could say, hey, I just I just more aligned with Alabama or I'm more aligned with New York or you name it. Um, but but that's not really what happens. Putting aside the cost of moving, leaving that entirely aside, people just don't leave their people. They just don't leave their people, which right, is their family don't. and their friends. Yeah. And so if, it, if there's a better opportunity for an auto worker who's currently residing in Michigan to go down to Tennessee and join what you're describing here in terms of the non-union auto work movement, they just don't do it too often. Right. It's just too uprooting to their lives and to their way of life. Yeah. It's so it's a, it suggests that people are a little bit like chess pieces that they could just be moved. But, and I, and I wonder about that. I wonder about people who are not well received in America. Have they ever thought about going to other countries where they would be better received? Like why, why not go where you want, where you believe in the same things other people believe. And of course it's just so hard to do. It's, it's very hard to do. And if you think about, the the evolutionary uh, migration patterns of humans all throughout history and there's archaeological finds that that prove all this to the degree that we can none of this is out of the ordinary people would just pick up and move when the food ran out this is not something that is uh, new it is not unique in any way it's not the first time this has ever happened and you look at the rust belt throughout you know, uh, New York and Pennsylvania and Ohio and, and Michigan. It's the Rust Belt because the, the the food has dried up and people, some people stayed, most people left. Uh, the populations have declined. Uh, they call it the Rust Belt because it's fallen apart, um, not because it's thriving and growing. Uh, and that's just the, the way life is. It's not, life is not fair. Um, and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> well, and that's the sort of fundamental promise of America is it's a winner take all society. And one of the easiest ways to think about this, often comparison is to let's say Scandinavian countries where there's a lot more support, even if you're not a winner. Um, <clears throat> and so you can decide to decamp to a Scandinavian country where you can sort of sure. opt out of a lot of the kind of crazy competitive, Hey, if you don't have the right skills at the right time, you're screwed kind of approach of America. Mm -hmm. Um, but they don't. They don't. Of course. I mean, I don't know anybody who's, you know, very American, has nothing to do in Scandinavia, who's moved to Scandinavian countries because they said, oh, that's a better fit for me. Um, easier to move from Michigan to Tennessee, probably. But um, but so your your kind of point here is you as a as an individual, even if you have a family, you've got obligations. Um, you need to think like an entrepreneur. You need to act like an entrepreneur and you need to take risks and you need to figure out where your skill set is most valuable and that's the best fit for who you are. I, I do to a certain degree. I don't think it's necessarily like an entrepreneur. I, I think it's more about taking, uh, at least take responsibility for your own survival. Um, no one else is gonna but do that for you. But groups they, do gather, groups do assemble to take, uh, take uh, 
care of each other's survival. I mean, no you know, a supermarket brings a, a thousand types of food to your town and very complicated food supply chains to make sure that you have things that you, you're in Pennsylvania right now. You, you, a whole community has come together to bring things together that are beyond just what your family can provide, an entire ecosystem. Yeah. So, mean, a, so a union is that, right? A union is a, a, tribe. a collection of a tribe of people who say we're going to help protect for the collective us. Absolutely. And I think that the real story here is uh, one of technological disruption and, and really basic business strategy where you have the, the tribe of the, the union. They're there to protect themselves. They're there to gather as many resources as they can for themselves, uh, which is completely reasonable and a fair thing to do and totally support that behavior. And you have to be able to produce something of value at a price that can, can produce actual resources. And I think what they are just generally missing is that they're missing the basic business strategy uh, of the auto industry or of any industry. You got to produce something of absolute value at a cost that is way lower uh, then, at, well, you got to sell it at a price that is lower than it took to make it. <laughs> uh, it or, and at some point, the, you won't be able to create value and sell it for a price that anyone can make a profit. And even if you remove profit as the driver, like you think about China as an example, um, where employment is the driver for of entrepreneurship or of businesses in China, it's not to make a profit, it's simply to employ humans. And so you, you end up with a, a uh, just a completely different world where the, the quality of things are much lower. Um, you have lots of disruption. People end up, the quality of life ends up to be just uh, lower because people don't have the freedom to, um, to make a profit, to reinvest and to uh, compete for uh, the preferences of, of a group. So my encouragement to any entrepreneur in the conversation sort of observing this is to really think about how can I produce more value at a lower price? That's what they're competing against. They're not competing against, you know, the, the all the news is around foreign automakers coming in. Like, no, they, they are already here and they're actually um, producing a better product for a lower cost and therefore they can sell it at a slightly lower price and they will win the day because that's just basic um, economics. Tesla, I think, is the absolute best strategic case uh, with this is that, again, they make five times more profit per vehicle than Ford, GM or Chevrolet. And that's reflected in the share price. That's reflected in how the, uh, the owners of that company have been rewarded. Things like that. Absolutely. And, you know, you think about, so Elon Musk, um, there's a Walter Isaacson uh, a biography coming out, uh, or it's actually already out. Um, and I didn't really start uh, reading it uh, yet, but I'm super curious. But he always talks about first principles and kind of the, the points of what first principles are is questioning every single requirement 
uh, deleting any and all parts of a process that you can. Just completely, just hit delete. Simplifying and optimizing everything to just an extreme degree. Uh, accelerating the cycles of development so you can test with check writers to actually test and test and test and find that exact product market fit and then automate everything you can. And the result of those first principles is something that people love at a price they think is ridiculously low compared to the value they're getting. And it's that relentless pursuit that is, that's why they're winning. And is it possible that the, both the owners of shares in let's say GM or uh, Ford or the workers of GM or Ford or Stellantis um, can all decide that to some extent they're opting out of that, those first principles a bit. They're saying, let's make good cars, not great cars. Let's make some profit, not the most profit. Let's create um, employment for hundreds of thousands. Uh, and the net result is all the things that it really is right now. In other words, could they consciously choose the path they've chosen? Or is uh, capitalism so relentless that it only allows for the winner to win? Well, I think because of the threat to labor and politicians having their own incentives that something will occur to stop that free market from happening. Some regulation, uh, you know, I, I think that um, Elon Musk is going to have a target on his back. If he doesn't already, he probably already does, uh, where Tesla is going to need to be stopped in some way because of if he, if they are free to pursue first principles, cutting the cost of the production, producing something that people like better. Um, With fewer workers. With significant, I mean, basically a fraction, uh, and that's obviously reflected in the, the low cost to produce, um, that I, I think that people will be incentivized to uh, try to stop that. Because what I see with Ford and GM and Stellantis is the relentless pursuit of mediocrity. Right. But again, uh, and I, uh, you know, just, I'm just playing devil's advocate here in yeah. exchange for employment, in exchange mediocrity for employment. in exchange for employment. So that, yeah. that, uh, that third constituency, right? There's shareholders, there's customers, and then there's workers in, in that, that pie, it just leans a little more towards the worker slice than let's say a Tesla, which says our, our pie slices are shareholders and, and customers primarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's let's. Oh, sorry. Last thought on this, because I want to switch to the writer's strike a bit and see how that matches and mirrors. Yeah, uh, I, I guess the kind of last thing I would uh, just say, and, and as people are thinking about this and, and thinking how they can apply it to their their business. Um, everyone is better off to the degree that you pursue excellence. Your quality of life goes up. Everyone's quality of life goes up because you're creating something new and valuable in the world as opposed to um, trying to hoard scarce resources. Well, then let me ask as a, as a part of that last thought. Uh, can that relentless pursuit of better uh, bring along workers in some way that's, that values them as highly as customers and owners? 
Yes, and it would be helping every human as on an individual basis uh, work in a place that they feel valuable, that they are valuable, they're fulfilled, uh, they are um, learning new skills, new capabilities, and not... I think that the, you know, Seth Godin talks about tribes and it's been long documented that a tribe size is about 150, right? That, that's kind of like the number of people that can move together and, and you can generally represent their interests really well. But we're talking about 150,000 people. That's not a tribe, right? The, every single worker inside of the 150,000 uh, people inside the UAW do not share and have the same unique capabilities um, and desires and wants uh, at the same time. Like that's just not a thing. Uh, so I think it's, it's just too big of a, a group to even worry about. So I think to the degree that they actually begin caring about each individual human on a human level and not thinking of them in a group, those, those workers um, and I don't even like talking about workers as workers as a group because it feels demeaning and sort of like um, it doesn't seem appropriate to say, oh, the workers as like a, an object. Like, no, they're people with unique capabilities and, and uh, desires and purpose. And so I think to the degree that you can uh, allow them to be free and have the autonomy to pursue mastery, whatever that is, on their own individual right, uh, we're doing the right thing, and um, sort of that free market will work itself out. Well, that's a tough. I'll call them workers for a moment because they're not part of the conversation around how innovation takes place. That generally speaking, they provide a skill, they provide some kind of labor, and the the owners, managers have decided what that skill and labor is. I mean, in other words. It's a lot to, I, I get your point 100%. That worker class uh, is not part of the innovation conversation, really. Um, and the idea of providing them with meaningful and fulfilling work assumes that the owners have already figured out where things are going. Like we need to build cars like this, or we need to do this, when in fact, the very nature of innovation is also like a lot, you know, there's fog, there's lack of clarity, there's experimentation, there's failure. And so the worker is asked to come along for that ride. And sometimes they could be told in the year 2022, you should become really good at this. And then by 2024, they're being told, yeah, that didn't really matter. That's not important. We're actually going to go this other direction. And the worker gets a bit whipped around in that, in that innovation journey. I think that's a choice though. I think it's a choice. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There's no other guarantees. <laughs> the, the, if you think about every person as an individual, they're saying, I have X amount of time. This looks attractive to me. So I'm going to go join and, and do this particular uh, job because it seems like a fair exchange of, of value for my time. You're, you're choosing to opt into that or you choose to opt out. Okay. Now let's switch to the writer's strike, uh, writers yeah. and actors. And this is about people who, um, you know, work with their minds. Of course, a lot of laborers work with their minds a lot, but yeah. uh, this is people who primarily and almost entirely work with their minds. <clears throat> and they, um, 
Yeah, their job is to, you know, it's what great comedians do. It's what great writers do. They sort of capture the moment. They help us understand where we are. They make a sitcom about family life. They make a drama about, you know, heroism. And they make us feel. And uh, it's a lot of how a lot of us get through our lives is by watching something that makes us feel a little different than we do during our eight hours of work. Um, and that group of people who are charged with making us feel things at night when we catch a few hours of television um, are on strike because they are not happy with the way they are being compensated as distribution changes from cable, which is almost in free fall, really, to uh, streaming, which is ascendant. So what's your take on their on that phenomenon? And also, since we've been talking a lot about the workers role on that phenomenon and the workers uh, role in that process and what they're what they should be asking for, or what's happening to them? Yeah, and I kind of, it's funny, I was, I was having a conversation a little bit about um, this with my with my brother. Um, and uh, he, he was talking about the NFL running backs, right? Right now, in the NFL, uh, running backs are not paid nearly as much as they used to. Um, and they're sort of banding together and saying, hey, we want we want more money. And the NFL is basically saying, well, that's nice. You're just not as valuable as you used to be. Hmm. Why is that? Well, because the system changed and the offenses have changed. Hmm. Um, a running back is simply not, it doesn't put butts in seats anymore. Hmm. Um, it's not as flashy. It's not a sexy thing to carry the ball and go three yards. And, you know, if you get four and a half yards every time you touch the ball, you get into the Hall of Fame as a running back. Like, that's a pretty boring thing. And so humans just simply don't value the performance of most running backs. Hmm. And and I would just say that's the same thing with the writer's strike is the 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 reality is you just aren't as valuable as you once were. And therefore, no one is willing to pay you uh, what you believe you should be. And I mean, that's just a cold, hard uh, truth about it. And I feel bad about that. But uh, as Charles Darwin made uh, famous, it's not survival of the fittest. It's those that are most adaptable to change. And so they just have to adapt. So, okay. So this question goes to both the writers and the, and the auto strike is there are times when the owners start to make tons and tons of money. It doesn't necessarily go on forever. There could be these great years though, two, three, four, X numbers of years yeah. where the owners make lots and lots of money. Do you think any of that is supposed to correlate to the writers or it's more like, you know, the system of, of negotiating is what it is and you're either going to negotiate well or you're not. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a just a a, a cold hard reality of any system where okay, you you, you have these owners, uh, they've they have own property, and that could be a business or whatever that produces a particular value, um, and if they figure out a way to to increase their overall profit because or revenue and therefore profit by reducing costs. Um, 
good for them. They're entitled to it. They, they've created something in value that no longer includes uh, those that labor. And that's just, that is the reality. And I don't know, people don't like to hear that because nobody really wants to be told, well, you know, you used to be valuable, but you're not anymore. And the reason is, is because, and at the same time, I'm doing much better than uh, you because I figured out how to not need you anymore. <laughs> right. Well, you know, when we talk about the uh, auto stuff, we're talking about there's non-union, there's companies made overseas, there's companies made as, as close as Mexico, and and it's all about, you know, how labor can move. And then there's also the Tesla argument, which is a robot can do what a person used to do. Yeah. In the writer's strike, it seems like they're not talking about saying, oh, if you won't write our sitcoms, we're going to get, we're going to go to Mexico to have our sitcoms written, or we're going to go to uh, Asia to get our sitcoms written. It's we're going to get a computer to get our sitcoms written. Yeah. Uh, so the real enemy there is not another worker somewhere who's willing to accept less. It's tech. It's AI. Um, yeah. So again, just to compare the two for a moment, auto strike versus Hollywood strike. Do you think the um, auto strike isn't really about union versus non-union, Asia versus America? Is it really about robots versus workers, just like it is in Hollywood? I, I think it all goes down to technology as a vehicle for, um, you know, there's, um, and I can't remember, so it's Moore's law that the, you know, the speed of computers doubles every two years. And I think that there's, what we're seeing now is the cost of everything is because of technology and, you know, the microchip. Um, at the same time, the speed is increasing at a doubling. I think we're seeing the cost of everything decreasing over time. I mean, if you think about and what's in an iPhone right now, um, if you roll, I mean, we've got a music player, we've got video cameras, we've got a communication device, we have the ability to connect to satellites, we have a GPS mapping system, uh, we have email communication systems, uh, we have social media networks, we can pay our bills, it's a bank, it can have crypto on it. Uh, there, the Apple chip can have a large language model on some of the chips. Um, so, and you can get the whole thing for a thousand bucks. Where if you go back 50 years ago, if you wanted to buy all those things separately, it would, you know, take acres and acres of space and it would cost tens of millions of dollars. So the cost just keeps coming down through technological innovation. And that's inevitable. You can't stop it. It's going to continue to really both demonetize and, and dematerialize as, as we go. Uh, air travel is the same way. Uh, interestingly, in like uh, 1820s, 1830s, um, people, when the sun went down, everyone would just go to bed because what else? And, and not very many people had candles because they're super expensive. You go back a little further, it was made out of whale blubber and it was really, really expensive to have a candle in your house. And so you are super wealthy if you could have a candle and read mm -hmm. at night. Uh, and, you know, if you happen to have a book, which was that alone was really difficult to get your hands on all, you know, 10 that were made that year. <laughs> uh, you know, like starting at the printing press, this went in, in light and refrigeration, like all these things 
we take for granted now, we're just continuously in this process of we have an LED light that costs pennies in comparison to what we make. 150 years ago, to have a candle would take your month's income to read a book at night when the sun goes down. And the book would take a month. And the book would take years probably of income to be able to afford one of them. And I'm, you know, I got my, I mean, these cost 10 bucks. I could have got them, uh, you know, digitally for half the price. I just like the way they look on a shelf. I like the mess. (laughs) Uh, You know, so I, I just think this is just a continuous process. And because we are um, so connected, we are paying attention to these things a lot more because they're, we're inundated with all these uh, messages about all these things. So I think with whether you're the writers or the auto workers, you're just a cog in the historical never-ending wheel of technology creating a world in which things get cheaper and cheaper over time. And ultimately, uh, while it might feel like they're losing right now, humanity wins in the long run. Everyone's quality of life is, I mean, even if you go back 50 years ago, our quality of life is just so much better, but we get caught in a comparison trap And so we're comparing ourselves to other people around us and it doesn't feel that way. But study history and you quickly find that this is not unique. It's not unusual and we're better off. Now, as sort of a wrapping up concept, notwithstanding everything, you've basically advocated for the power of innovation and capitalism for our our time today. The, you, you know, you and I work with a lot of entrepreneurs whose companies sell something that's really great and relatively new. And when you sit and talk with them over a cup of coffee, they say, the problem is the change management piece. You know, I've got a better widget, but my customers have a hundred workers in each of their sites and the workers are slow to adopt. And so, you know, there's so much stuff out there that actually is better. It's just that the, the, the there's a group of people. Okay. Well, let's just, in this case, we're calling them workers, but there's also customers can do the same thing mm-hmm. who just don't want to change. And they just become that friction to innovation, and um, is do you think that there, do you have any kind of moral or ethical judgment about that friction? Is that you know look that friction exists, innovation exists. They're constantly bumping up against each other, and over time, probably innovation wins. Probably, um, but but that friction exists. Is that a bad thing? Is it a good thing? Is it a non thing? I, I think it's human. I think it's just we are hardwired to resist that change. Um, and at, at some point, you either decide to opt in or opt out. Um, I think a good example, like social media, I don't participate very often, very little. Um I would prefer not to have a phone in my pocket because I think it's a distraction. It takes me away from focus. Um, However, we live in a modern world and you have no choice but to opt in. Like you will just be completely left behind. You will, you know, uh, end up in a place you don't want to be if you don't opt into the, 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 the wave of the tribe you decide to participate in. 
So I just think, you know, if Darwin was right, those who resist it to the end will lose. You know, it's funny though, I, there's a, an image I'd like to just leave us with is, I remember, this is now going back a bit, but I remember when, if your company issued a some kind of a smartphone or maybe a Blackberry, if they issued it to you, it meant you were important, right? Yeah. There was a time when not everyone got it automatically and you didn't necessarily have it on your own. So if your company issued some sort of communications handheld, you were important. And then there was this other level, which is, if you're really important, you don't use a smartphone. You've got like an assistant <laughs> who tells you what you need to know. Right. <laughs> so there was like the bottom, like didn't have the smartphones. The, the pretty important people in the middle had the smartphones. And then the, the, the CEOs did not have a smartphone because they were too damn important for something so prosaic. That's uh, right. <laughs> and so, but, but now I would say, I would venture to guess the president of the United States and the, the king of Morocco probably have smartphones. I mean, there is no... From bottom to top, everyone who is connected has to be connected through a tech like that. Um, yeah. That distinction's gone. So um, it's just a, just a kind of an image I was thinking about, like how technology goes from uh, being something that's really hard to access, like a candle or a book, to something that's totally ubiquitous. Uh, and how it changes what its value is to us, like all those books over your shoulder. I know they're valuable to you, but they're but they're not like the pride and joy of your life. They are they cost ten dollars each and whatever. Yeah. Um, so it's just funny how this technology transform. I, this is what I think about a lot these days. I think about the things that transform us. You know, that inevitably and irrevocably transform us. Like um, becoming a parent transforms you. I mean, mm-hmm. everyone who's not a parent understands what parenting is. But to actually be a parent is transformative. Right? Yes. There are things, and there are so many things like that. And one of them is management or ownership. When you get into that role, it's transformative. When you have all that responsibility of making decisions that help customers, owners, workers, vendors, the larger world that you're in, it's a transformative kind of responsibility. That, yeah. uh, and we're in this moment with writer strike, auto strike, the conversation does get simplified and boiled down so that we can consume it through the news and things like that. But I really do believe that the owners of, uh, or the managers slash owners of the auto companies do think about all their constituencies, all their stakeholders. They think about the planet. I think Hollywood people rapacious as they are, uh, try to think about everything and everyone because that kind of responsibility is transformative. I totally agree. And, you know, you got you while the technological innovation is inevitable, it we are all still totally and utterly human. You don't want to see any suffering out in the world. You know, we get worked up about things and uh, sometimes there's just simply no good choices and you just make the absolute best choice that you can because it's not always, you know, win, win, win all the way around because of that disruption in the long run, you know, sort of the long lens sure. of that, it, it seems to work out pretty, pretty good. Yeah. So for the running backs, we weep for you. Uh, for now, until for now. some time, you know, at some point that might, the tide may turn and go a different way. <laughs> and the running backs can start their own football league. They could, and no one would watch it because it would be really boring seeing a bunch of people go four yards at a time. 
<laughs> or they could, but they could alter the rules and make it more exciting. They could make it. They have to make it to punch each other while they do it. Maybe we watch that. Hey, if that's what it takes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mark. Thanks for uh, joining me on this conversation Thank today. You. It's always fun to uh, you know shoot the shit and discuss uh, matters of global importance. Yes, at least you know for today. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mark. All right. We'll see you. Thanks for listening to another episode of What I See, where we explore the stories of the visionaries shaping our world. We hope you found insights and inspiration from our guests. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode and continue to be a part of the conversation. See you next time on What I See.